Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. For this episode, I'm introducing you to a naturopath who practices in Arkansas, and she has a wealth of information to help you live better. Dr. Mamie Burris became interested in health when she had her own issues to resolve. You'll get to meet her right after this. It's that exciting time of my podcast where I get to tell you about Akles Carpet One. That's right. The flooring company in central Arkansas is more than flooring. Go to their website. See what I'm talking about. AklesCarpetOne.com. You'll see that, yes, it is flooring. That is the headquarters for flooring for the state of Arkansas. But also, Richard Akel and his team can get you the cabinets you need if you're building a home, if you're remodeling, if you want to do something in the bathroom and you want the fancy tile and and the look of marble, if you want the luxury vinyl plank, that's the flooring everybody's going for right now because of its durability. But the fact that Akel's Carpet One beats the big box store prices, well, let me just tell you, my producer of the Lisa Fisher Said podcast, he's a hard sell. He's looking for the best deal to the penny. And Darren went to Akel's Carpet One and Akel's Carpet One beat the big box store price by X amount. He knows to the penny because that's how he's wired. And at Akel's Carpet One, that's how they're wired to beat the price and to give you the best service, the best installation, the best installers and the best service after the sale. You're dealing with a family who cares about you, the customer. Who says that anymore? AclesCarpet1.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, I try to pick podcast guests that have weird medical philosophies like uh, I do. And uh, Dr. Mamie Burris, that's a compliment, really. But, but Thank you. please, please don't let it offend you. And it's because, let me tell you, those of us with the weird medical philosophies have been right the whole time. And the other ones that are conventional or backed by big pharma or food companies are the ones in a pickle. That's, that's how kind of I, I step away from that and try to be objective about it. But uh, you're a naturopath. I don't even know if we have any others in Arkansas. We might have one or two. Tell me about that profession. It fascinates me and tell me how you got started. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll start with telling you how I got started in it. It really was my own frustrations with conventional medicine. I had health issues that started when I was pretty young, gut issues that started when I was in about first grade. And so I went to doctors off and on over the years and was sort of given the runaround, take this OTC, take this pharmaceutical, and nothing really helped. It was really just about managing symptoms. And I can actually remember a point in time when I was talking to my doctor about diet and trying to figure out if something I was eating was contributing to my symptoms and that being completely dismissed as just absurd. There's no way that there was a connection there. And I remember thinking, I I don't believe you. Like, I really think that there's more to this that I could be doing. I think I have more control, but I just didn't have access to medical professionals that were giving me the information that I needed 
to be empowered to take control of my health. Uh, when my period started as a teen, they were really heavy, very painful. And so I was put on birth control at 15. And that kind of managed the symptoms, you know, periods lightened up a little bit, they weren't quite as painful, but I was still reliant on ibuprofen or prescription naproxen every cycle to get through those first few days and definitely miss school and uh, time with friends and it interfered with I was a, a dancer growing up so it would interfere with that as well. And um, so it was really just my own frustrations with the limitations of conventional medicine and just not really getting anything but a Band-Aid approach that drove me to seek something else. And I didn't really know what that something else would be. So fast forward in college, I am, I've decided I want to be in healthcare. I know that that's something that I want to do. And I was on track to go to conventional medical school because that was the only thing that I knew was really available. Um, and I, I graduated from college and was doing, you know, I was studying for the MCAT and starting to try to figure out where I wanted to apply for medical schools. And I just had this inner epiphany of like, wait a minute, you're very frustrated with your experience with medicine. You have not enjoyed your, you know, experiences with doctors. You wait forever and then you see them for 15 or 20 minutes max, and then you're leaving with another prescription. Um, that doesn't really address the issues, you know, like you're still suffering. So you don't really want to do this. <laughs> this isn't really what you want to do. And then it was like, okay, now what do I do? I've prepared. I've gone through college as a pre-med student. I've prepared to go to conventional medical school, but I don't actually want to be a conventional doctor. What else is out there? Um, and I ended up kind of by chance, seeing this um, holistic healer in Arkansas, just really mainly out of curiosity. Um, and he is actually the reason that I found out naturopathic medicine existed. He had done some naturopathic training and I read that on his brochure and I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? What is naturopathic medicine? I have to go home and find out about this. And fortunately, Google existed then. So I went home and uh, spent hours researching going down this rabbit hole of naturopathic medicine and realized that there were accredited naturopathic medical schools that you could attend that would teach you how to uh, address like the root imbalances of your symptoms, the root causes of your symptoms using natural therapies like food and herbs and vitamins and minerals and lifestyle. And it just immediately was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I've been looking for. This is it. And so within nine months of finding out that naturopathic medicine was a thing, I packed up all my stuff, was moving to Portland, Oregon to start school and the rest is history. What did your parents think? Because it is an unconventional approach to what they would think they want you to do probably a conventional route. You know, they were, they're all, they've always been very supportive of me, fortunately. Um, and natural ways of healing things were not completely foreign to me and my family. I can remember being younger. And when my sister and I were out of sorts, maybe we were kind of struggling with mood or feeling a little depressed. And my mom would give us St. John's wort, or we'd been sunburned or burned ourselves. And she had an aloe vera plant that she was, you know, pulling a leaf off and giving to us. So it wasn't a foreign concept to approach things naturally. 
Um, but it was definitely very different from anything that anybody in my family had experienced in the healthcare system. So I think that there were some reservations in part because I was moving so far away, you know, and they were going to miss me. It's also a huge um, commitment financially. It's very expensive to go to medical school at all, but to be going to uh, a, a, a type of medical school that isn't well accepted and that doesn't have the same career opportunities as other types of professionals. You know, there was that risk I was taking on. So I think there was com- some concern, but they were really supportive, fortunately. Yeah. Now, the schools in Portland, Oregon, which is um, the West Coast, obviously more open to this type of thinking. Does our state prevent you from charging uh, or having a relationship with insurance providers, writing prescriptions? Is that state by state? It is state by state. So not all states recognize naturopathic doctors. Arkansas is one of those states. And I'm so, so sorry. Yeah. And so when you're practicing as a naturopathic doctor in an unlicensed state, you don't really have a defined scope of practice. You have to be really careful that you're not tiptoeing over into other professionals' scope of practices. And it means that a lot of the training that I received, I can't come back and offer here in Arkansas. So as part of my training, I learned IV therapy. I learned how to do uh, naturopathic manipulation, which is very similar to chiropractic care. I learned minor surgery. I learned pharmacology. (laughs) Pharmacology and how to prescribe and manage pharmaceuticals. And I can't do that aspect of my training here in Arkansas. But fortunately, diet and lifestyle and herbs and and vitamins and minerals are so powerful. There's still so much that I can do to help people. I don't really feel like um, I don't really feel like my ability to help is hindered, but it does it does limit what I can offer. So there was a, a big chunk of my training that I can't use here until we change the laws. Does it make you sometimes think you want to move to a state that has more is more open minded? You know, I practiced in California for uh, a few years before moving to Arkansas. So, um, you know, I had some practice in a state that that recognizes NDs and and it was it was nice to be able to have a more expanded scope of practice. But the reality is that there's such a void of alternative providers here in Arkansas. It's such a need. And I really feel like what I'm offering is um, a really, really important piece of improving the health of Arkansas as a whole. So I, I'm okay kind of setting aside some of the, that training that I can't use here if it means that I'm helping people that genuinely need access to this that aren't going to get it otherwise. Well, obesity and metabolic uh, people who are un- metabolically unfit, I think we're going to tackle that in a grassroots effort because yeah. big pharma and food manufacturers have have not helped at all. No. So I, I do think it's the multiplication effect, Dr. Burris, of you tell two people, they tell two people, they tell two people, and we can start seeing the needle change in our health. And that's my passion just as a certified health coach. You know, I, I'm recognized only in this family as a cert, you know, as certified anything because it doesn't matter. But I recognize you as a naturopathic <laughs> physician. If, if you want, put that on your resume. Lisa Thank Fisher you. said. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, one thing you talked about that, um, boy, I'm seeing a lot of chatter of recently because it must be something in medical school or oh, big pharma that tells doctors if a girl is in her prepubescent or menstruation, she's beginning 
uh, cycling. And if she even has one twinge of discomfort or she has one pimple, you and you and you get the pill. And Dr. Amy Beard famously said on my podcast recently, no one is deficient in synthetic hormones. You're not lacking a synthetic hormone. You may be lacking by, you know, female hormones, but the last thing and the last way to approach these, uh, and it, I, well, I, I want to ask you, what do you think's causing this epidemic of every girl we know has heavy periods? Uh, and I remember having discomfort um, and nausea and having a bad day, but now everybody's got them and everyone has acne. So everyone takes this pill. Yeah. Yeah. It's really passed out like candy and there yes. is not informed consent that's happening for these women that are being put on birth control. It certainly didn't happen for me. And had I known then what I know now, yeah. I, I would have done things differently, but it was the only option that was presented to me and I was miserable. And so I took it. Um, and I will say that there are some cases where birth control is the right option for a woman. Um, even when it comes to those painful and heavy periods, endometriosis can be an example of a time when um, birth control can be really helpful symptomatically. But to answer your question as to why I think so many women are dealing with period problems, it's really, it's a multitude of factors. So there's an enormous amount of stress that's going on and stress totally disrupts the communication between your brain and your ovaries. And if you don't have adequate communication between your brain and your ovaries, you're not going to ovulate. And if you don't ovulate, you're not going to make progesterone. And progesterone is really important for a lot of reasons, but one of its main functions is to help balance out estrogen. So if you're not ovulating or you're not producing adequate amounts of progesterone, you're going to end up in the scenario where you've got excess estrogen that's unopposed. And that leads to a lot of heavy periods, pain. Uh, menstrual migraines can be part of that picture. Acne can certainly be part of that picture. So the, the issue with stress is a big one. Inflammation is a huge one. So these inflammatory uh, immune molecules that can have hormonal action, prostaglandins, um, are, can be really disruptive of your hormone receptor sites, your hormone balance, that communication between your brain and your ovaries. So inflammation is a really big issue. And inflammation can come from a variety of sources. But what you eat and how you live your life is one of the biggest biggest ways that inflammation comes into the picture. So that's a big problem. We also have a ton of toxic uh, environmental chemicals that act as hormone disruptors. And these different chemicals can either block hormonal receptors or they can attach to these hormone receptors and have a hormonal impact. And a lot of them are, um, are mimicking estrogen and estrogen's effects in the bodies. And so toxicity and environmental toxicity is a big one. And so that comes down to, you know, how well your liver and your gut, it plays a role too, but how, how well your liver is processing toxins and then how well your body is getting rid of them. And so, back to what I was saying about the gut, your gut health is going to play a big role in your hormonal balance. Your liver packages up these hormones so that they can leave your body, but then they're going to leave through your gut 
And so if you've got constipation, if you're not pooping every day, if you have dysbiosis or an imbalance in the microbes that live in your gut, you can recycle these hormones. You can have a hard time getting rid of them. That's going to add to your overall load. And then you've got hormonal imbalances that are really because of your gut issues. So there's when we're talking about hormonal issues, it really there's so many different places where other parts of your body can impact your hormonal balance. If we're just giving you know, women a Band-Aid in the form of birth control, we are doing them a huge disservice because we're not addressing these other imbalances. And then they're allowed to fester. And then months or years down the road, this woman is dealing with more serious health issues in these other areas because the, the real problem hasn't been addressed. Right. And it compounded it with the synthetic hormones. So if progesterone is almost like a blanket to keep estrogen at bay, right, to keep it balanced, and is progesterone what you um, release in the second half of your cycle? Yeah. So after ovulation, if you don't ovulate, you don't release progesterone. So after ovulation, progesterone gets released in the second half of the cycle. So women that are having a lot of symptoms that are coming on before their period, PMS and whatnot, often this is related to a either a lack of progesterone or there's just not enough progesterone relative to the amount of estrogen they're that they're dealing with. And then when do the ovaries get involved? Because so this then balances Dr. Burris and sends us or spawns the whole polycystic ovarian syndrome, which means the ovaries are producing androgens, which are a precursor to testosterone. So that girl, woman says, gosh, I've got facial hair, acne, um, I, I'm losing my hair, you know, I, and I'm in obesity because it then somehow connects with our pancreas and insulin resistance. So kind of explain that to me. So what's, what are the ovaries role then? Cause we want some testosterone, don't we as females? Yeah. 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 You need some testosterone present. Um, but with, with PCOS, so insulin resistance, and you brought this up, but insulin issues are a huge, huge piece of the puzzle when it comes to PCOS. Yes. Women are dealing with insulin resistance and these insulin surges will actually go and talk to the ovaries and tell them to produce testosterone. So the, the issue of PCOS with having um, androgens that are too high, that are causing the acne, the facial hair growth might cause you to lose your period, causing uh, hair loss. That, that can be driven by these insulin surges. And so a really big piece of um, addressing the, the issues of PCOS and the hormone imbalances that are associated with PCOS is diet and lifestyle and really helping to sensitize your body to insulin and, and doing what you can with nutrition to prevent those insulin surges so that your body is not getting the message to produce those um, androgens. The other place where those androgens can come from, or one of the more common places is from the adrenal glands. So stress is a really big part of the picture when it comes to PCOS and different women will have, um, you know, certain, certain, um, issues will be more prevalent in some women versus others. So some women have PCOS that is primarily driven by adrenal dysfunction and some have PCOS that is primarily driven by this ovarian production of androgens. Um, insulin resistance is really a common factor with all of those, but, uh, the, the adrenal secretion of these androgens can really play a role in that overall androgen load. And so, keeping stress down and really working on the communication between your adrenals and your brain so that that's happy 
makes a really big difference for women with PCOS too. And this is where, you know, we can't um, ignore the fact that these environmental toxins play such a role in messing with the communication between our brain and our ovaries. So environmental toxins are going to be a piece really with everybody that's dealing with chronic symptoms and conditions, but especially hormonal imbalances. What do you call, what are your three big offenders with environmental toxins in that we could tackle right now? Oh gosh. So yeah. So actionable steps. First one would be body care. What are the products that you're putting on your body? A lot of women are slathering on lotions and other skincare products that are filled with these chemicals, fragrances and phthalates and parabens. And these really disrupt um, your hormonal system and overburden your liver. So cleaning up your personal care products and choosing personal care products that are uh, devoid, you know, that don't have these chemicals is a really amazing um, step in the right direction. I've had women who have had um, pelvic pain completely subside when they switch their skincare products. Like that's how <gasps> wow. significant, yeah, that's how significant these toxins wow. are. Don't underestimate this. So what you're putting on your skin gets in your body. That's a place where you have total control. Um, your food, eating, you know, chemical-laden pesticide foods, uh, meats that are um, conventionally grown that are being pumped with hormones and antibiotics. This is another place that toxins show up that you do have some control over. Now, not everyone has the financial ability to eat only organic or to only purchase grass-fed meat. So you want to do the best that you can. Um, but eating out at restaurants all the time or eating fast food all the time, you're absolutely being, uh, you know, being exposed to these toxic chemicals that are going to disrupt your hormones and cause other issues. So personal care products, the food that you're putting into your body, um, and then water, the quality of the water that you're drinking, you know, avoiding water that's bottled in plastic. Yeah. Really any, any food or beverages that are bottled in plastic, you are being exposed to the chemicals that are in that plastic and they are disruptive of your hormonal system. If you're able to invest in a good quality water filter, that's going to be filtering out contaminants that are in water because even your tap water has tons of chemicals that are allowed to be there at certain levels that can disrupt your hormonal system. There's prescription drug residues that can show up in our tap water, you know, so getting a good water filter and trying to stay away from bottled water is another really, really good step. So those three, I would say, are the most actionable places where you can take some action. You have some control. Because I always have um, to come alongside and give you a yes and yes and yes to those three. My yeses of those are I've switched much, not everything to Beauty Counter, much of my products to Beauty Counter. And if you go to EWG.org, you can see which products are more lethal for better sense of the word because yeah. they're carcinogenic, all the things. So that's one thing. And you can There's like, also you an app called Think Dirty. And it oh, pulls from cute. that EWG um, oh. information and okay. it's an app you can have on your phone. You can scan barcodes. So oh, while good. you're in a store, you can you can see where that product stacks up when it comes to the, the toxic load. So that's a that's a nice that's awesome. easy. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Another thing when you talk about um, the I try to get all the local foods I can get. And the argument someone said to me recently was I, I, I can't afford all that. And I said, well the way to justify it in your budget is stop buying from the inside perimeter of the grocery store, which really costs a lot 
per ounce or gram or however, because it's just filler of crap. So you're not getting nutrition. You're not getting satisfied. We know the brain doesn't recognize it in satiety. So you have to eat 10 granola bars. And if you made your own granola from the seeds that you roast yourself, there's a big difference. So that's kind of my argument is, yeah, I do buy as much organic as I can because I don't buy any crap on the inside of the store. So it probably comes out in the wash. Yeah. And also, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that being sick is really expensive. Very. It's very expensive. So you might spend a little bit more upfront, but you're doing more for your health in the long run. It is more cost effective in the long run. The other thing that can be really helpful with organic foods and kind of working on a budget is the EWG's Dirty Dozen and Clean 15. So they have that list of the 12 um, produce, fruits and vegetables that have the highest pesticide load. And then the Clean 15 is the list of 15 fruits and vegetables that test lowest in pesticide residue. So when you're on a budget, pay attention to those lists. And if it's on the Dirty Dozen list, really focus on getting organic. If it's on the Clean 15 list, you know, it's okay to kind of slide and maybe get the conventional version of that food. So that can also be helpful. Hi, friends. I've made no secret that I do love intermittent fasting. It's because it changed my life in 2017, not just on the scale. There's just 10 pounds on the scale, but it freed me from the constant obsession with being hungry all the time, never being satisfied. It regulated my sex hormones. It regulated my hunger hormones. It lowered my need for thyroid medicine. I still have to take it because I kind of have a dead thyroid, but I'm telling you what it did for me. And that's why I talk so much about it in my podcast. Do you need help starting your journey? You know, someone introduced me and now I want to introduce you to intermittent fasting. You can do that by emailing me fasting at lisafishersaid.com. Link is in the show notes. I do monthly classes. I do one-on-one, I do all the things to help partner with you so that you can be the best you can be. Now, fasting, it's not about weight loss. It's the health plan with the side effect of weight loss. You can start changing your life now with intermittent fasting. Go to the show notes for more information. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great tip. And then my water tip is if you're here in Little Rock or in a city with a natural grocers, they have a water spigot in a glass bottle that you can take. And that's what sometimes my daughter will do when she travels um, to avoid plastic water bottles um, and any plastic storage of anything stored in plastic. So these are things that you just kind of have to tweak. It's, it's not Mount Everest. Not every issue we're talking about is Mount Everest. Something is just a little bump in the road that you can learn to navigate. It may take a little more time and it may take a dollar more in the beginning, but it does end up saving you money because the meme last year that I saw that I loved was it's your money. You decide you either pay the farmer now or you pay the hospital later. Yeah. Meaning, you know, if you can get food from your local farmer and just about anyone listening to this in the U S anyway, I'm big in Belgium. I've got two listeners in Belgium and I'm sure they can get organically locally raised cattle or beef, pork, chicken, you know, eggs, whatever that um, you can definitely do that. So just some things I was thinking of. I'm putting all these things in the show notes, Dr. Burris, as well as your contact information uh, so people can talk to you because they don't have to be just in Little Rock because you'll talk to them virtually, I would assume, anywhere on the planet. One of those Belgium listeners might reach out to you. (laughs) They're big Lisa Fisher said um, fans. 
Okay, back to the periods, because um, as a thyroid patient, as a Hashimoto's patient, I, in the early days, had an endocrinologist. I do not now, because that endocrinologist retired, and he had the same philosophy I do, and that is treat the patient, not the symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. Not the lab values, treat how I feel. And yeah. so, but I really studied under him a lot and it helped me formulate my philosophy about thyroid. But the one thing he told me years ago, because then I started driving the thyroid shuttle to go see him. Like people would go, oh, will you take my daughter to go see Dr. Baltry? You know, can you be there? And I remember him saying that one of the most important indicators of a female's health, the biggest barometer is her menstrual cycle. Yes. And we poo-poo it. Mamie will say, oh, I'm on the pill, so I haven't had a period in a year, or I'm on so-and-so birth control device, I haven't had a period in a year. He would always say, oh, what? and he's 84 now, and he's, I still consult with him. He'll say, I don't like the way that sounds. So let's just talk about how valuable, what the menstrual cycle tells us. Yeah. Yeah, it is a barometer for health. So if you've got issues that are happening with your menstrual cycle, either your cycles are irregular, they're really heavy, or maybe your flow is really scanty, um, you have a lot of symptoms like PMS that's coming before your periods or your periods themselves are really heavy or really painful, this is all valuable intel that your hormonal system is out of whack and probably some of these other systems that play into it. And again, it's one of those things if you're just if you're just using a band-aid in the form of birth control, you're kind of covering up some of those symptoms or sort of pushing them aside and kind of hiding them. You're allowing these uh, deeper imbalances to fester. And so sure. this idea that, you know, well here well here's another thing. So a lot of times women will um women will consider the bleed that they have while they're on birth control as their period. And I want to clear that up because that's a big area of confusion. If you're on birth control, the period that you're having is not really a real period. So oh. if you think that your period oh, is healthy wow. because it's regular and it's not that big of a deal and you're on birth control, that's not really a barometer for what your body is doing. The real barometer is what is your period like when you're not on birth control? That's really going to give us the most valuable information. So don't be fooled into thinking that the period you're having while you're on birth control is a true period. It's not. What is your, in a perfect world, what is your favorite period length and flow yeah. for a healthy individual. Yeah. So I think in an ideal world, somewhere in the, in the range of three to five, maybe four to six days of bleeding, you might have a little bit of minor discomfort on the first day, but nothing that should interfere with your quality of life or your ability to participate in your life. Nothing that should really require much intervention. Um, it shouldn't be heavy for sure. You shouldn't be going through a lot of feminine products to be able to, to keep up with your flow. Shouldn't be a lot of clotting. And there shouldn't be a lot of, um, there's going to, I think it's normal to have some level of emotional changes that are happening. I really feel like the period is a chance when we, um, when we're getting rid of physical toxins, but I think it's also a time when we can let go of emotional toxins. And so I do think it's normal to have some level of emotional shifts that you might, you know, embrace, but it shouldn't totally throw you off. You shouldn't be depressed or anxious or unable to sleep or irritable and wanting to, you know, bite everybody's head off. I mean, there's, it really should be pretty easy. It should come. It shouldn't, um, 
it shouldn't change your life in any meaningful way. It shouldn't wreck your day and it shouldn't, um, it shouldn't be something that, that you dread, you know, it should come and it should be an easy process and then it goes and then you move on with your life. But that's not really the case for a lot of women. Now, the heavy flow, uh, the clotting, that's indicative often if you're over 40 of perimenopause, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of times women, when they're going through perimenopause, and let's let's define that really quick. So a lot of times people and even doctors do this, will use the term menopause when we're really talking about perimenopause. So menopause is that time frame after you're done cycling, you've had a year of no periods, you're in menopause. Perimenopause is the two to sometimes 12 years leading yeah. up to menopause where your hormones are going on a roller coaster ride. So your estrogen can drop to very low levels. It can also raise to levels that are sometimes twice as high as estrogen levels that you ever had before that. So estrogen's on this crazy roller coaster ride. And at the same time, your level of progesterone is starting to drop. And so you don't have that progesterone there to oppose the estrogen. And that leads to a lot of the symptoms that women experience in perimenopause, the hot flashes, low libido, night sweats. But yes, the periods will get heavier. And it's because of that estrogen roller coaster without having enough progesterone to really uh, counterbalance. And you know, uh, well, mine also really did that when my thyroid started yes. dying. And yes. so, but my uh, obstetrician, I, I was finished having a baby. So my gynecologist said, we'll just do an ablation. Like I was driving through and picking up uh, dry cleaning. We'll just do an ablation and move about your day. And again, my weird medical side said, no, we're not going to do an ablation. You know, let's not do that. And I'm glad that I weathered that storm because I, and I've said before, and I, I've been criticized for saying it, but keep your parts and keep your parts as your parts. Yeah. Working as best you can. I understand there's some people that's a blanket statement and I'm ignorant to say, I don't want to sound ignorant and say that. I know some people have to remove parts, but what, what are they saying the ablation will do? Is it another bandaid? Cause it doesn't solve the real issue. And that's the estrogen dominance, or in my case, my thyroid was wonky, whatever. So what, what's the ablation supposed to do? Yeah, that's really going to come in and like remove that endometrial lining and thin it out so that you're not really going to have those heavy periods anymore. But you think, what do you think? The body, if it has a heavy endometrial lining, it should be shedding it, right? It should be shedding it. Yeah. And really the deeper question is why is there such a, a thick right. lining that's building up and what can right. we do about that? So for women in perimenopause, and you mentioned this, I'm going to I'm going to sort of sidebar just for a second. And that's that thyroid issues can mimic the issues that are happening in perimenopause. So some women will be having what are, you know, perimenopausal symptoms, and it's really about their thyroid, or they might be having issues with both systems that are yeah. contributing to their symptoms. So if you're perimenopausal- and it sucks. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? Okay, sorry. I'm over it now, but it, it's it's a hard period. Oh, pardon the pun. It's a hard yeah. period. It's a hard yeah. time in your life to have them tandem. Yeah. Yeah. So make sure you're getting your thyroid fully evaluated if you're perimenopausal and dealing with symptoms, because 
all the hormone replacement therapy in the world is not going to fix an issue if it's released in right. from your thyroid. So right. uh, dovetail for that. But yeah, when a woman's perimenopausal, there's really a few things we need to be focusing on. We need to be focusing on estrogen metabolism so that when she's hitting those estrogen highs, our body is able to deal with it. We need to be supporting uh, progesterone production and that communication between the brain and the ovaries, as well as the adrenal. So this is a piece that a lot of doctors miss. And that's that when a woman is going through perimenopause and she transitions over into menopause, it's really the job of the adrenals to step in and produce adequate uh, adequate some adequate amounts of estrogen and progesterone so that you don't feel bad, so that you're not dealing with those symptoms. So if you're having a really hard time in perimenopause or even after the menopausal transition, it really could be about your adrenals not being able to step up and produce those hormones at adequate amounts. The other thing that starts to happen in perimenopause when you're having these estrogen swings back and forth is that that kicks off an inflammatory cycle. And so if you are a woman who's already been dealing with inflammation, then that increased inflammation that's happening from those estrogen surges is just going to worsen inflammation where you already have it in your body. So women can experience a worsening of other issues that they were already having before that perimenopausal period. And the reality is that even if you correct the estrogen levels, so if you're having those drops in estrogen, you get put on hormone replacement therapy, even if your estrogen levels are normalized, that does not always take care of that inflammatory cascade that's been kicked off. So you need support um, additional support to come in and reduce inflammation. So adrenals, reducing inflammation and helping you to metabolize estrogen are really big pieces of um, supporting a woman in perimenopause, in addition to making sure thyroid's not playing a role, as well as taking care of blood sugar and insulin, because those insulin surges can further disrupt thyroid, adrenals, and also your sex hormones. So your blood sugar regulation, it's really at the heart of hormonal balance that can't be ignored. Well, wow, there's a lot to unpack. There. Um, <laughs> well, you kind of mentioned so just let's talk about chicken and the egg with, with yeah. um, ovaries and insulin. So because this is the theme of everything we're kind of talking about, because ovaries and insulin and then adrenals, we, we brought those nice little guys in. They're little bitty, you know, things in um, front of the kidneys. Um, so which came first? Are you insulin res resistant first? Or did you have an ovarian hormonal issue first? And then did one trigger the other? Yeah, I would say in most cases, it's going to be that insulin dysregulation came wow. first. Yeah. Isn't that something? Why isn't that being shouted from every rooftop that if we're not addressing insulin, the need for insulin sensitivity and the ubiquitous insulin resistance, that's why children are getting fat. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason that so many Americans are dealing with metabolic dysfunction, obesity, type two diabetes. And like you said, now our children are dealing with these issues that we, you know, in previous decades never saw kids dealing with. No. Insulin dysregulation is a huge issue and it's really at the foundation of hormonal balance. So if you have hormone issues you're not ever going to be able to fully address those issues until you're taking care of your insulin sensitivity and your insulin regulation. And that the beautiful thing is that that it really has to do with, again, what you're putting in your mouth and how you're living your life. That also means that the responsibility is on you. Now, you have to know 
you don't know what you don't know, right? So you have to be given the right information. But once you have that information, you've got to act and you've got to make the changes. This is not something you can play around with. Insulin dysregulation is seriously disruptive and it's going to lead to an increased risk of so many different chronic diseases. It's deadly. I mean, cancers are fed by insulin. I mean, we know that dementia, I mean, on and on and on that people just aren't, I, I don't know. I don't, I think it's Dr. Burris, because for so many years we were looking at calories in, calories out. We know that obviously has fallacy to it. Yeah. Um, in fact, Dr. Robert Lustig said there was the biggest bunch of, and he said BS on a podcast I was listening to the other day. Uh, he wrote the book called Metabolical, which is fascinating. Let me write that down because it should be in everybody's um, bookshelf. But, you know, he just said, I'm sorry that we've been lied to all these years. Um, a calorie is not a calorie is how he, his famous words. And he also says to um, protect the liver, feed the gut. That should be our job every day to protect the liver and feed the gut. And so I try to think about that uh, now with eating, but um, you know, as an intermittent faster, I always have a caveat with people of that. This is not for pregnant women, nursing women, anyone who's recovered from an eating disorder or children because children's growth is so important. So then how do you think we can start pushing moms and dads to curtailing the insulin barrage that is happening? Yeah. I mean, it really starts with what your kids are eating. Right. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent, so I can't speak from experience there, but I do know that kids are so impressionable and they're really influenced by what they're around and what they see day in and day out. So if you as a parent are modeling um, behaviors that are supportive of insulin sensitivity, so you're not eating junk food, you're limiting sugar, ideally avoiding added sugar altogether, but you're limiting it, you're not eating fast food, you're not eating, you know, carb heavy, starch heavy meals that aren't balanced with protein and healthy fats. Like if you are modeling those good eating behaviors and those good food choices, your kids are going to follow suit. So I think the first step is to educate yourself on how important this is and the changes that you should be making and then model that in the home so that that's what your kids are seeing. But then there's sort of this added, I think, complication with what is your kid eating at school? What are they getting at school? For a lot of kids, um, they have breakfast and lunch at school, and you don't really have control over what food is being served and which food your child you know, chooses to eat that's offered to them. So I think we also systemically need to really change the food system from within. And, and with kids, I think that what's being served at schools is a really, really big area that needs to be addressed. Have you read The Glucose Revolution yet by the Glucose Goddess? I haven't. Oh my gosh, you will uh, uh, you'll you'll die reading it. You'll love it so much. Because she is a biochemist who has an interesting story how she got in, interested in this, but it goes so she is of French descent and so grew up in Europe, but you know, is bilingual obviously. Um so the Europeans really look at things a little differently than we do. And they're not in as bad shape as we are. Cause you know, that was that whole French women don't get fat thing from 20 years ago. But, and what she's saying is that it's the constant glucose. She says for every spike and dip you have, you're one step closer to heart attack. It's keeping your glucose in a certain range. And so she does, 
you know, her, it's based on research. It's not, some things are anecdotal and she'll tell you, but when it's research. So she shows, even with children, she says it's the constant nursing of the apple juice all day. It's the constant snacking all day. And that our grandparents and great-grandparents ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner because until the 1970s, there were no snacks. Consequently, or I guess coincidentally, there were no fat people. Unless you had a metabolic disorder, right? So it's the constant, she said, barrage of fructose and glucose and things that what your body does. So she even has um, her own experiments where she'll eat, let's say, some rice with um, a steak. She'll eat the rice first and show the glucose spike. She says, remember, you want to stay away from those. Then she eats the steak and then eats the rice and it goes, blip, it's, it doesn't spike. And she says, if we can start thinking in those terms, then foods aren't bad or good. Now, packaged foods, I think everyone, let's agree, they're off the table, okay? Yeah. Because they're nothing but glucose, typically, because in order to make that product for to taste good, there's a lot of sugar and fat in it. Yeah. And the bad fats. So if you, if it, she's saying, you know, it's with our families, we can start saying things of, let's just reduce the, you know, it's kind of the intermittent fasting mantra to reduce the amount of hours of the day that you're constantly nursing something. And maybe the glucose spikes, you won't see as many. And then the weight comes down because the glucose spikes are what spawn insulin resistance, right? Mm-hmm. So we can see the cycle. It's kind of like a graph I saw once that said, the fatter we get, the more insulin resistant we get. And the more insulin resistant we get, the fatter we get. Yeah. I mean, insulin is a, it's essentially a fat storage hormone. It basically tells your your body don't mobilize fat. So if you're having insulin surges, your body is getting the message to lay down fat, uh, to not burn fat. So if you're trying to lose weight and a lot of women that come to see me, this is something that they're, they're wanting to achieve. You can't do that successfully if you're not taking care of these insulin surges. And you mentioned fructose. That's a big one. And I don't mean fructose from fruit. Now you definitely can overdo it with fruit. I mean, fructose from processed and packaged goods. So your, your fast foods, your sodas, um, those that fructose is it's so much more concentrated in these processed foods than what you would ever get from nature and it totally disrupts insulin regulation it leads to leptin resistance yeah for sure uh, when leptin's the hormone that's telling your body that you're full so if you have leptin resistance then you're you're you don't feel full you just feel more and more hungry mm-hmm. um you know despite eating and insulin resistance and leptin resistance go hand in hand so Getting out these processed foods and actually eating whole foods, making your foods at home makes such a big difference. You also mentioned having the rice with the steak. So having adequate protein is essential, period. You should be getting enough protein, but it really does help to blunt that blood sugar and insulin response. And it's true too, even you mentioned the the steak with the rice and how that, you know, she had the rice without, and then she had the rice with the steak and that really made a difference. What you eat in your first meal of the day really sets up your body for how it's going to respond to subsequent meals. So if well, you, you just can- read, you just read her whole book, you clearly <laughs> have read it. This is exactly what she says. 
Yeah. So if you can yeah. make a really smart choices with your first meal of the day, you're less likely to experience sugar cravings and energy crashes. And when you eat lunch and dinner later on, then your body is going to do a better job of responding to that in the form of, you know, uh, insulin and blood sugar spikes that are lower than what they would be otherwise. So breakfast really is the most important meal of the day. And it doesn't have to be in the morning. It's really that's just right. the first meal that you eat that day, even if it's at noon, that's breakfast. That's right. When you break your fast. Yep. Um, yeah. So today for me, I'm breaking my fast at 4.30. So I'll have a 24-hour fast today because I'm going to speak someplace. I'm not going to eat beforehand. So, But it will be a delicious meal in Searcy. There's a Thai restaurant there and I am going to have all the good things. The other thing she says, because you really summarize her book, that really is on, because um, she talks some about intermittent fasting, but she's talking about what your glucose does as you eat and how it makes you more insulin resistant. So she says, when you do break your fast, she says Americans, and she's so cute with her little French accent, talks about the croissant. She says <laughs> Americans and the croissant. Um, she goes, don't do that. And she, she also says, don't feed your kids cereal. I mean, yeah. she, pretty much that's what she says. Don't feed your kids cereal. It is nothing but a glucose spike, you know, right? Yes. But she said, so when you approach your meals, and this is what I've been doing, she said, approach it when you break your fast um, with something green because of the fiber in it. And fiber, I think, adheres to the glucose molecule. It maybe helps you assimilate it. She says, then she talks about meals. It's all about macronutrient stacking. Then she says, eat protein, then eat fat. Okay, yum, yum, yum. That's a steak. That's a burger, whatever, right? Salmon. Then she goes, then and only then do you go to the carb that's on your plate. Sweet potatoes, baked apples. And then and only then do you go to fruit and dessert because she said, then you've brought things down where there's not a fire raging. And she said, then your body will thank you. And cause she had one client who is very slim, but was having maybe she had some PCOS though. She was, she was not overweight, but she's kind of normal weight, had PCOS and was in the morning drinking a big fruit smoothie. And she said, what people don't realize is when you drink a fruit smoothie, it's way more portions of fruit than you would eat in a sitting. You would never eat two bananas, uh, you know, a half a cup of grape or a cup of grapes, um, an apple, um, an orange. She goes, you would never eat all that. Plus it takes all the fiber out by the time they pour it. Yeah. So she said, if, if you are at home and you're making your smoothie, she said, just make sure you have, because she was talking about American breakfasts. Um, have eggs first or salmon or roe or cheese or cottage cheese. I mean, she mentions all the things with that, right? Yeah. Shows, and then eat, if you want a smoothie, put half a banana in there, a few grapes, some blueberries, a quarter of an orange. She'll then, after you've had the food, then see if you want it. By then you're probably satisfied and full. Yeah. I mean, I think a big key with breakfast is to embrace savory breakfast, right? Yes, like for sure. American, the standard American diet is so heavy on sweets for breakfast, these different pastries and cereals and those refined carbs plus the added sugar are totally going to wreck your blood sugar and insulin regulation. And then you're set up for energy crashes and messed up 
blood sugar and insulin responses when you eat later on. Like you're not going to feel satiated from that. So anything that you would normally have for lunch and dinner that's more savory can absolutely be eaten for breakfast. We kind of have this idea that there's like certain foods that are breakfast foods yes. and then these foods are lunch and dinner. Right. And that's kind of ridiculous. That's not really how they do it in other places in the world. That's a very American thing. So embrace savory breakfast, uh, get away from those sweet breakfasts, and that's really going to do your body a lot of good. I've had uh, patients that have started to lose weight just by changing what they're having for breakfast. I believe it. Like that's how powerful it. it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to rent a billboard somewhere that's just going to say it's all about insulin. You know, <laughs> quit thinking about it because that those sweet breakfasts give you such a glucose spike, which then infects affects your insulin. Kind of explain then to people, because anytime I talk to anybody about it, they'll say, we talk about insulin. They go, but I tested my blood sugar and it's fine. It's 92. And I go, well, glucose is not insulin. Can you kind of give us uh, the doctor's way of explaining that? Not just the, the health coach's way? Yeah. So a lot of people are used to getting a comprehensive metabolic pump uh, panel run at their annual visits, and this will test your glucose. Now, hopefully your doctor told you to be fasting when you yeah. got that lab drawn. I definitely see that uh, instruction missing for some people, but um, that's going to test your fasting glucose and it needs to be in a certain level. What I don't see doctors doing, most doctors doing is also testing a fasting insulin. And what I've seen in my practice, yes! <laughs> sorry, what I've seen in my practice is that we can start to see, uh, rises in fasting insulin far sooner than we start to see abnormalities in glucose. And so if you're, if you're not, if you're having a normal fasting glucose, that does not mean that your blood sugar regulation is happy. Right. So get a fasting insulin. Hemoglobin A1C is also helpful for this, but also pay attention to how you feel around food. If you're craving sweets after you've eaten, or you're still hungry after you've eaten a balanced meal, you're probably dealing with insulin resistance. If your energy skyrocketed after you ate, you're probably dealing with some hypoglycemia and you need to be eating uh, more substantial meals and more protein. So how you feel in your body before and after meals can also be telling of that blood sugar regulation that's going on outside of labs. But yeah, fasting glucose is not going to give you the whole story. Mm -hmm. You really need fasting insulin and hemoglobin A1C to have a better idea of what's happening with your with your blood sugar regulation. And I'll say that most people I work with, and this, this is regardless of weight, most people I work with are dealing with some level of insulin dysregulation and we have to work on that. Um, does insurance cover at least for you to order lab work? You know, I stopped trying to play the insurance oh, game with lab I work because, yeah. you know, if, if they don't feel that it's medically necessary, they won't cover it. And then in those circumstances, patients can get stuck with the insurance cost of the labs, which yeah, is which billed is, much higher yes. than like a cash-based price. So I just work uh, with the cash-based panels because then I know for sure this is your cost. There's not going to be any surprises. But I do have patients where we'll, we'll uh, talk with their primary care doctors and see what they might be willing to order so that insurance is involved. Oh. Um, but okay. insurance doesn't really typically cover my services or see what I do as medically necessary, which is so ironic. So silly. So it really is because they would save a lot of money if they would just so much embrace money. preventive care. Right. Um, but yeah, it's the they system don't, we're in. Yeah, yeah, they don't want to do that. They'd rather, uh, I mean, I know my massage therapist said uh, with her situation, 
she went, she got interested in massage therapy as an ICU nurse because of her own uh, physical issue, some anatomical thing like she and her sister had, but the sister did, the insurance paid for the sister to have the neurosurgery, but wouldn't pay for her to have any massage therapy and Mm. massage therapy fixed the problem. And the sister's in a wheelchair now. So you see the difference? I mean, it it just, it it just makes me shake my head all the time. I mean, I do this all the time. Um, Again, all these things in the show notes. Um, Let's just talk about a couple of things then. How much time do we have? Okay. That are really common then that people deal with. And you kind of mentioned in the beginning, but constipation that as a thyroid patient, we've kind of cornered the market on this, but it's it's something I see with women a lot. How, How do you kind of deal with that? Yeah, it really depends on why the constipation is happening. So one of the first places we want to look is diet. A lot of people have undiagnosed food sensitivities or food reactions that are creating inflammation or that are driving these imbalances with the microbiome, the the organisms that live in the gut. So that can be a cause of constipation, thyroid for sure. And just as a side note, the thyroid testing that, that most doctors are doing is not adequate to identify thyroid issues. Most doctors are running a TSH. That's the standard of care. That's what they're taught. Um, But TSH alone is not going to identify thyroid issues. And sometimes you can get a doctor that might run a total T4 or a free T4 along with that TSH. But if that's all your doctor is ordering, you absolutely can have significant thyroid issues that are going on that are not going to be picked up on that. So then what else do you like to include? Do you do antibodies and others? Yes. So TSH, a total and a free T4, a total and a free T3, a reverse T3. I also like to throw in a T3 uptake and then getting your thyroid antibodies, anti-TPO and anti-thyroglobulin. It is not a full panel from my perspective if all of those markers are not tested and every woman should be getting those markers every year. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with that. Um, so constipation then can be sourced from obviously thyroid disease. Thyroid issues. So I mentioned the food sensitivities, microbiome imbalances. So if you have fungal overgrowth, bacterial overgrowth, parasites, that can lead to constipation. Dehydration can be a common cause of constipation. Stress, that definitely shuts down your GI tract. That can be a cause of constipation. So it really depends on inactivity, being too sedentary, not moving your body. That can be a cause of constipation. So it really depends on what's going on in that woman's life and what these these contributing factors are. But, um, but constipation, yeah, it's a common issue and it needs to be addressed because your stool is one of the ways that you get rid of toxins. And if you are not having regular bowel movements, you are recirculating toxins. You are not getting rid of your hormone metabolites the way that you should be. That can lead to hormone imbalances. And generally, you don't feel good. I know when I used to deal with constipation, I would be so irritated, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, literally full of crap. Um, yeah. <laughs> also, it's a risk for like Parkinson's disease and other diseases because you need to rid yourself of toxins. Yeah. And there's a huge connection between what the gut's doing and and your brain health. And so um, you want to have a nice, healthy gut microbiome. If your goal is to age gracefully and have good cognitive function, um, as you get older, you've got to have a healthy gut. When I was in naturopathic school, one of the kind of mantras we were taught is that all disease begins in the gut. 
all that's health right. starts in the gut. And that's so right. we've talked a lot about insulin. That's huge. We've definitely yeah. touched on stress. That's also really huge. But your gut health matters. So if you're dealing with constipation, diarrhea, bloating, gas, reflux, abdominal pain, like those are signs that your gut needs some help. And it is very much worth it to investigate that and figure out what's going on because it impacts so many areas of your health. Okay, we'll have to do a part two of this conversation. <laughs> we'll do gut health. Yeah. And we'll break down some other things because I still have another million. You know, I have a million questions because the first <laughs> time I met you, I, that was a million and one questions. So I'll make it a mil two million questions next time. Great job, Dr. Burris. And Thank you. folks, this is somebody who could be in your wheelhouse and she is just a digital conversation away. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.